Welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in North Texas. I'm your host, Eric Egan. April 11th is National Submarine Day, commemorating the day the United States Navy acquired its first modern commissioned submarine. That was April 11th, 1900. The history of submarines actually goes back many years before that, back to the time of the American Revolution. On this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, we visit with John Scholl of Prosper, Texas, who served on board a submarine during his time in the Navy in the 1980s. We will talk about John's interest in submarines, what it takes to qualify to serve on one, and what it's like to live on board for months at a time. John, thank you for being our guest on this episode. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me to to contribute to your program. Let's start by getting to know you. Tell us about yourself. <laughs> well, uh, uh, that's a, that could be a long story. I was born at a very early age. Uh, <laughs> let's see. So I'm, uh, I'm retired, uh, 60 years old, uh, living in North Texas. We've been here uh, since 1993. So I guess we're going on nearly 30 years now. Uh, with one period where we lived in Virginia for about five years, but uh, love North Texas and have uh, had great experiences here. Many of our children were born here. Karen and I have five children and six grandchildren. And uh, I was born in Southern California. Uh, at the time, it was a, a town called Altaloma, which is a funny name. And it changed to a funnier name, but most people have heard of it who are familiar with the West Coast. Rancho Cucamonga is now a very large city in, in uh, Southern California. It actually was the incorporation of three strangely named towns called Altaloma, Etiwanda, and Cucamonga. Uh, so uh, I grew up in Altaloma really my, my whole life until I left for college, uh, had never left Southern California. And uh, it was it was great. It was a good childhood uh, in in an era where California wasn't uh, quite so busy, quite so much traffic, quite so much smog, and uh, some people would say maybe not so crazy, but uh, it was great. And that's where I met my wife. So growing up there, I understand you were not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but were introduced to it in your youth? Yeah, I was not a member. I think that uh, my story was a typical story in high school when uh, you know kids start thinking more deeply about uh, critical questions of life. And I uh, had a crush on a, a girl who was a Southern Baptist. And so, frankly, came to know Jesus through that connection. Hmm. Up until then, uh, you know, I had been going to a Roman Catholic church. And prior to that, uh, the Episcopal church, so kind of a, a Catholicism background. My father was an Episcopal priest uh, before I was born. And so had those overtones in my, uh, in my family as well. But really came to know Christ through that uh, high school crush and then had another high school crush who I'm married to. And uh, she introduced me to the LDS church. And it was a uh, it was a long road to kind of get me there. Not a contentious road necessarily, but it was a number of years. I, I'm a convert, 20 years old. So you were introduced to the gospel in high school but baptized at age 20, yeah. which must have been when you were in college. Yes. So what did you do for college? I went to the Naval Academy. We grew up poor. 
Uh, I wasn't going to go to college unless I found a way there. I was a pretty good student and I uh, was a competitive swimmer and so was looking for those kinds of scholarships and got a letter in the mail my junior year inviting me to a math and science seminar week in Annapolis and uh, just knew that was the place I wanted to be. I just, I loved the patriotism. I loved the, uh, the idea of being in the Navy. I had never thought about it before. I mean, I was a long-haired Southern California high school kid, right? And uh, so I went to Annapolis. And then, uh, you know, kind of since high school through that period was, <laughs> we call them anti-Mormons then. I don't know what we call them now, but I was uh, antagonistic toward the church for uh, about two or three years. And then uh, you had my own conversion story when I was, uh, when I was a sophomore in, in college. And that must have been right around the time that you started to develop an interest in submarines. Yeah. So it was really, probably a year after was the submarine experience. Each summer at the Naval Academy, you go do something. Uh, so you go on a summer cruise, they call it. And the first year I was on a, on a ship out of San Diego. It was an LST or a tank landing ship. And so experienced that. And then the, the next year we did various things preparatory to being a the following year. Uh, and so we went to see the, the aircraft and, you know, unfortunately I didn't get to fly jets, but some of my classmates did, mm -hmm. which is what I really wanted to do and uh, got to be on a submarine. And uh, that was a lot of fun. My eyes weren't good enough to fly jets. And uh, I ended up picking submarines in the final analysis and in hindsight, that was really the best thing for me. What was it about being on a submarine that was so attractive to you? Uh, well, I'm an engineer right to my core. I, as a kid, took things apart and put them together and learned how to put them together correctly at some point, but have always been fascinated by how things work. And uh, that intellectual curiosity for the engineering side led my major at school. Most of the people who go to Annapolis are engineering majors, but I loved it. And, uh, and did it very willingly and as hard as I could. And the submarine's a lot like that. When, I mean, you're operating a nuclear power plant, you're operating machinery, and knowing how and why and what to expect from a thermodynamic or from an electronic perspective was something that I just, I just ate up. And so, uh, and the submarine offered all of that. So once you had decided that's what you want to do, what kind of preparation do you go through to prepare to actually go on board and live there for a time? There's a pipeline of things to do. First is getting accepted into the submarine program. And uh, many people who, have, who are in the nuclear power Navy, submarines or surface ships, know that Admiral uh, Rickover started the whole thing. And he oversaw what still is called naval reactors and also the uh, matriculation pipeline for officers who go into nuclear Navy. He interviews every single one of them. I was the first year that Admiral Rickover did not interview. So, uh, but Admiral McKee, who, who succeeded Admiral Rickover was the person I interviewed with. So you go for a day of interviews and exams and, you know, they try to make you founder a little bit, but anyway, I, for some reason made it through. And so then you go to six months of nuclear power school post-graduation. It's a lot of physics, material science, electronics. Think of graduate level nuclear engineering is, mm. is really what it is. It wasn't at an accredited university, but that's, that was the course of instruction. And then six more months of 
getting your hands on a land-based nuclear reactor with instruction. So you're always paired with an instructor side by side and uh, doing a whole set of uh, activities that qualify you to graduate from that training and then onto a ship. So it sounds like that takes well over a year to prepare. Yeah, it was. It's a year of elapsed time. And then, of course, moving to different places, a little over a year of travel and training. And then I stayed on as an instructor after that second tour of getting your hands on a nuclear reactor. Uh, there were two of us who were asked to stay behind and be instructors. And uh, so I did that for another year. And explain why that element's important. Understanding these are nuclear-powered submarines, yeah. and so everyone has to be trained to understand what you're dealing with? Yeah. First of all, I mean, they're safe, but they are nuclear reactors. And the Navy, if you think about it, drives aircraft carriers and submarines and nuclear ships in and out of ports all around the world. And you just have to have a perfect safety record. And uh, so there's a lot of training involved in not only the engineering and understanding, but also working as a team so that you're following all the right procedures and you have, uh, you have the crew around you who also know those procedures and backing each other up and doing the right things at the right time. It's very safe to operate, but uh, I don't want it at all sound like it's dangerous, but it is a nuclear reactor. Once you went on board the submarine, how long did you expect to be on board? So I was an officer. I graduated from Annapolis. But usually your initial sea tour, the first sea tour, is a couple, between two and three years. And so mine was a little over two years. And so that was the expectation of time on board. And the first year you're on board, a little over a year really, is more training, more qualification, because you did all this stuff on land, school and a, and a reactor that's on land, but it's not the reactor that's exactly in the ship. And so there are nuances that you have to go learn. And so you do it all over again uh, on the ship. On the ship, did you have a specific responsibility or set of responsibilities, I assume? I did. And, and we rotated them so that you could get broad exposure. So when I reported on board, I was the chemistry and radiological controls officer. So there were about eight or nine other crew that I worked with who were really smart, uh, well-trained in chemistry and in the reactor chemistry. Because, you know, we used to take a little bit of reactor coolant, test it, make sure that the water chemistry was all right, uh, that the plant was operating like it should. And these are the, the folks who did that kind of stuff, as well as monitoring the ship for any uh, radiation. Uh, so they do those kinds of things as well. But I also rotated and was the machinery division officer at one point, which is about 30 people, and the electrical division officer, the radio division officer. These are all at different times, but got broad exposure to really all operations on the ship. So about how many people are on board? Normally about 120 total, 120 to 130. I was on a Los Angeles class fast attack submarine. So that was normal complement. And then we would flex up if we were going out to sea to do things that I can't talk to you about today. <laughs> I was in during the Cold War. And so we used to go do things that submarines did during the Cold War. And so you could add uh, 20 or 30 people who were specialists in, uh, in areas that uh, we needed specialists. When you're out to sea, how deep does that submarine usually go? <laughs> so that's one of the answers I can't give you. It's in excess of 400 feet is the answer I can tell you. I can also tell you that Jane's fighting ships 
sometimes is remarkably accurate in its uh, uh, numbers. And it would it would say that uh, submarines of my type were capable of going down to around a thousand feet. So we normally operated, you know, a few hundred feet below the surface. There are a lot of reasons that you would choose a depth that have acoustic rationale of where you can hide the best. And how often would you surface during that time, typically over the course of two years? So it depended a lot on uh, the kind of operation. So maybe the broad picture you should have in your mind is my ship every 18 months would go for a sixth or seven month deployment. We would leave home port and go to the pointy end of the spear uh, where during the Cold War there was a potential threat. In between those 18 months, uh, we would go out for a week, in for a week, out for two weeks, in for a week. You know, it would be rare to be gone for more than a month. And during those times, you would surface a ship, you know, maybe a couple times, certainly when you arrived at your destination. So we could leave Hawaii and go to San Diego and you'd surface off San Diego. But there are other times you did drills and you would surface the ship for drills. During that six or seven month deployment, when you're out doing things that uh, you have to read about, I can't talk about you wouldn't surface at all. Uh, you would come stick your periscope up and get satellite information and messages and, you know, that kind of stuff. And that would be for a very short period of time. You'd stick a, uh, an antenna up, but you wouldn't surface. I have talked with others who have been on submarines who have said that it was difficult for them at times to be underwater, not seeing the sky or yeah. land for extended periods of time. Did you feel that way? I didn't. I loved the operation of the submarine. It was really, really great. Now, I also had the great benefit of being able to stand watch as the, what's called officer of the deck. And so you're kind of in charge of the thing while the captain's eating, sleeping, whatever. There are three or four officers who would rotate. But what that meant is you get to stick the periscope up sometime and actually look around. And, and so I, you know, not everybody got the chance to do that. So, no. so a small consolation, perhaps if you're underwater for 60 days, but, but it was some consolation. Well, when you're operating under there for that type of length of time, there's got to be all kinds of activities going on. You're eating, you're exercising, you're sleeping and other things. How does that all work in a submarine? Well, the, the cadence all revolves around uh, what your job is operationally. So earlier we talked about, well, I could be the machinery division officer. That was more of an administrative responsibility. I wrote the performance evaluations for the machinery division. I made sure that the work got done, the maintenance checks got done, that type of thing. That's really administrative. Operationally, when you're out at sea, somebody always has to be in the reactor control room. In fact, there are four people who always have to be in the reactor control room. Somebody always has to be around the main engines. Somebody always has to be at what we call the con uh, in running the ship. And so as an officer, I would either be in the reactor control room or on the con. Usually what that meant is I was one of three or four. Okay, so now what does all that mean? There were six-hour watches. So every third six-hour, you would be on in charge. So you basically had a backward rotating 18 hour day if there were three. If there were four, then you had a steady, you know, one time during a 24 hour period that you were in charge of that. We call them watch stations for six hours. So that was what drove everything. 
and during your off time, you would sleep, you would eat, you would shower, you would uh, do all the administrative things I just talked about and maybe catch a movie if uh, you had time. So hopefully that wasn't too complicated, but it all revolved around what you were doing to keep the ship running. Well, that made me wonder too, is, is there a night, is there a day when you're in a submarine? You're aware of it because we use 24 hour time, right? So you it's 1800 or 2000 so people knew it but when it was dark on the surface of the ocean which could vary through where you were in the world right uh, then we would make sure that it was dark in the ship except for red lighting in certain places so anybody who would be on a periscope it would always be red light and if you were down a deck or two then you could you'd have white light but anywhere kind of in that area you'd know that it was dark on the surface how large of a vessel are we talking about here? Football field, 365 feet, I think, if I'm recalling that exactly right. With multiple decks, it sounds like. Yeah, so there were usually at least two levels and sometimes a lower level. I always imagine a submarine being pretty tight quarters, yet that's a large ship. Yeah, it's pretty big. There's a lot of equipment. And it's, so it's, you know, it's maybe 40 feet across, 300 and some change long, 360 long. But of that 40 feet, it, it narrows down pretty quickly to a few passageways. You've seen those watertight doors. They spin the handles, you know. Yes. There are passageways that run between those, and that's that was the main thoroughfare. You'd mentioned earlier watching a movie. So there's entertainment on board along with other things that you do as part of your job, it sounds like. Yeah. So, you know, we would, uh, there was no internet, so no no Netflix back then. Nope. But we had... Uh, you know, racks of Navy issued, I think they were Betamax actually. Uh, they may have been VHS anyway, tapes. And uh, you'd see the same movie a couple of times. But. Yeah. With the time that you spent on a submarine, what did you like the most about it? You've mentioned a few things, but if you reflect on that, what would you say your favorite thing about being on board was? Well, so I already mentioned the engineering, right? I just, I reveled in being able to walk around the ship and it's, this is not an exaggeration and everybody on the ship who wore those pins, the gold or silver pins, everyone could walk around the ship and say, I know what valve that is and what it does. I know what piece of equipment that is and oftentimes how to operate it. And so I love being that intimate with the piece of machinery so that you, you know, you were knew you could safely operate it. And so that was the engineering side of me. You said operationally, what did I love? I liked the idea of being underwater. It was pretty cool. I also liked carrying our flag to foreign ports. You know, there are times when I stood on the back of the ship, we raised the American flag in the morning and we would lower it in the evening and the national anthem would play. And, you know, it was our piece of America. And we were very appreciative where we were and the countries that hosted us but you grow in your appreciation of uh, these great United States when you experience the blessings that we have here as compared to other countries, third world countries that are not, uh, as, not as fortunate as we are. It makes you grateful. It makes you want to share. It makes you want to serve. And so I love that too. It sounds like you were able to visit ports in many places of the world then. Yeah. So we were in Japan and Korea, Thailand in those areas specifically. And as I mentioned, I was stationed in Hawaii, but those were some of the, the, you know, the experiences I had. 
on the other side of things, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced while on board the submarine? Well, certainly being away. I was married, had two kids, and that was hard. It was also hard on Karen, uh, who is very independent. And uh, so she didn't experience, at least not that she's ever told me, sometimes the depression that other spouses could experience being away with kids. And, you know, it's, it's very real. And so I was fortunate that I didn't wrestle with that. Uh, and she didn't wrestle with that. But it was just hard being away. I left on one of those long deployments in, uh, in June of 1988 and got back in December. When I left, my son could not talk. When I got back, he was speaking. Mm. And so that was interesting. Did you have any contact with them over that time? You know, it, it was not the technology era that we're in now. And so when we got into port, uh, we could call. It's on your own nickel. Uh, that was a long distance, expensive call. Hmm. Some ports she could visit. And when I say some, it was one time in, in the seven months I was gone. And it was costly. So she flew to Guam from Hawaii. <laughs> so we, we saw each other in Guam in November of that year. And they had this great thing that the, the families could do, which is you're allowed 10 hundred word messages that they would send via the satellite to the submarine. And then the radio division would get to slice them all up and hand them out to the right person. Huh. That was special. As you consider the overall fleet that the U.S. Navy has, what's so special about the role that submarines are able to play in our overall strategies? Well, first of all, if you look at the history of submarines, it's long been the aspiration of navies to hide a vessel. Going way back, I think it was in Greek or Roman times, you know, putting a helmet on and the flame still burns and, you know, the people survive for a while, you know, that kind of thing. And then Confederate times, right? There was actually an operating submarine, manually operated and put a harpoon with explosives on it at the bottom of a ship. And uh, it blew up, it sank the ship. It also sank the submarine because back then, didn't understand that uh, the pressure waves in water were very different than pressure waves in air, and it, it, it damaged the submarine. <laughs> so it's long been the aspiration. Submarines, when I was in, uh, there were two types of submarines and very different missions. So I'll start with the kind I was not on, and they're called ballistic missile submarines, and they're, they're big. They're way bigger than what I was on. They carry uh, ballistic missiles that you've seen launched on videos and they pop out of the water and their engines go off and they go up into the lower areas of space, really. And uh, they have the ability to drop nuclear warheads from up there. And as distasteful as that sounds, as peacemakers, it was a deterrent from others who had the same capability. And if you didn't know where the submarine was, it was very hard to take away the you know, United States capability to launch those things if we ever had to. So the deterrence was one mission of submarines. I was on a fast attack submarine and we had a few missions. One was to find other submarines. To, so to find those things I just described, right? That's called anti-submarine warfare. And then we also had reconnaissance and espionage as a mission. And those are things that... Uh, I can't get specific about, but it was very interesting stuff that we did 
There's a great book out called Blind Man's Bluff, and it's the history of submarine espionage. And it's uh, if anybody's interested in that, that's a a lot of submariners endorse it uh, as something to read. You know, we can't talk about stuff that seem to be talked about there. You use the term submariners. It sounds like maybe it's become part of your identity since you had that experience years ago. <laughs> yeah, guilty. It seems like every role I've been in, every job, it becomes we, not they. You know, it's no longer I, I guess, but it, it still is we. It becomes a part of you. I can I can tell that that's really part of who you are now. Yeah. What advice might you give someone who's interested in working on submarines? Well, there are there are college programs aimed at getting you ready for that. If you don't go to the academy, at least when I was in, it was called Nuclear Power Officer Candidate or something, NUPOC. But talk to a local recruiter and say, I'm going to college. How do I get into the submarine force? There is uh, obviously an engineering thing you have to learn, but you don't have to be an engineer in your background to learn it. You know, you go to those training classes. It's a whole lot easier if you've had thermodynamics in college than to understand thermodynamics after college. So maybe major selection would make you a stronger candidate, but just talk to the Navy. Say, I want to be in a nuclear submarine. I'm sure they would love it. I'm sure they would. (laughs) So you were in the Navy for a while. Tell us about when you left the Navy and what you've done since. Uh, So I left uh, the Navy. Again, we were in Hawaii and we moved to the West Coast. It's in Northern California. I grew up in Southern California. This was in Northern California. Hard pill to swallow. There's a rivalry there. Uh, But I worked in the Bay Area and a real natural extension to sort of the Navy leadership of leading between, you know, 10 and 30 people was to lead between 10 and 30 people in a manufacturing environment in Silicon Valley. So I worked for a company that built voicemail computers. It was called Octel, O-C-T-E-L. The technology is still around, although nobody really uses voicemail much anymore with all the other technologies. And I ran uh, two shifts of crew that were uh, building those computers. And it was a great path. I started going to night school because I didn't know anything except Navy. And so I learned more about business, economics, and learned more about manufacturing and you know that type of thing. Eventually, I applied to business school and fortunately got in and, and went to business school. You, you never know how these things happen. I'm convinced the the windows were open on a nice spring day and blew my application from the no pile to the yes pile. And so I, I, was, I got to go. And so business school, and then I it was a consultant for five years, left consulting, did a startup, not as an entrepreneur, but as a part of a small company, went back to consulting for another 10 years. And then had a career as an executive in various healthcare organizations and retired uh, as the president of a, of a healthcare information technology company. This has been fascinating to learn about your past and, and specifically to learn about submarines. And I think it would be great to close with hearing you talk a little bit about how the gospels blessed your life. You mentioned your introduction to the church in high school, the fact that you were antagonistic toward the church for a time. But then you got baptized at age 20 and you married your second crush from high school who was a member of the church and you've been blessed with a wonderful family. What else would you add to that high level sketch I just mentioned? Well, I I guess this. So the question is, well, why the change, right? You can tell, probably tell I'm pretty analytical and I had read all kinds of books. and And so I had the bright idea of I will read 
Mormon sourced LDS sourced books and show Karen how wrong it is. So I read Jesus, the Christ, marvelous work and a wonder, the articles of faith, all of which were great reading and answered a lot of questions for me. But then I started reading the book of Mormon. And, uh, you know, I remember being in second Nephi, why second Nephi? I have no idea. Most people don't get to that part, <laughs> get through that part. It was somewhere in second Nephi and it was like a lightning. It just, it was true. So I, uh, I was baptized shortly thereafter, pretty golden contact for the missionaries. Cause I just, I had my own experiences with Jesus Christ. I had found him again, or he found me or guided me, whatever you want to say it. But I knew I was on the right path. I had a testimony that the prophet Joseph Smith had a testimony of the book of Mormon. I didn't know anything about being a Latter-day Saint. I, I had to learn it all old, right? I didn't know it primary was. I didn't know what mutual was. I didn't know anything. And so I appreciate my wife standing there and helping me learn all of that as we went along. I hope I've given back as much as I've received. Thank you for that. And thank you for being a guest on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm delighted to uh, bore you with my humble story. Thank you for having me. Our guest on this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices has been John Scholl, who served on a submarine for two years during the Cold War. As with all who serve in the military, those who serve on submarines make special sacrifices to preserve our safety and freedom. National Submarine Day is another great time to express our appreciation to those who selflessly make those sacrifices. For Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, I'm Eric Egan.